0: This is the Social Distance Podcast, and you're very welcome. Today, I'm chatting with Stephanie Keis. Um, I reached out to Stephanie after she responded to one of our previous episodes, and she very graciously agreed to come on and have a chat with me about her dad. So we'll hear that in a second. But before we get started, I just wanted to say, if you have a COVID-related story that you want to share with us, drop us a line covid at com is the email address covid at grrl.com and we'll get back to you now today's chat is lovely and it's sad and heartbreaking but it was a lovely experience to have a chance to listen to Stephanie talking about her mum and dad and growing up on a small farm in the state of Missouri in the USA and you'll hear We recorded this on a hot summer's morning, so you'll hear Stephanie drinking an iced coffee as we chat. And Stephanie's dad's name was Victor Ray Bingman. He was born on the 20th of November, 1937, and he died on the 22nd of June, 2020. So here is Stephanie Kice talking about her dad.
1: He um, grew up in a very, very small town in southwest Missouri called Golden City, and he had—actually, my grandfather was (laughs) a horrible human being and had a family with three kids, and his wife was pregnant with another kid, and then he married my grandmother— at the same time and so he had, my dad had four half siblings that were sort of, I don't know, they knew they existed but they were sort of mysterious in some ways. And um, then he had three brothers and they had all kinds of, they had pigs, they had cattle, they worked very, very hard. And he ended up graduating from high school and moving to Kansas City, where he stayed with his oldest brother's wife's family so that they could work. And that's how we met my mom. They lived down the road from where my mom grew up. And so that's how they met. And and where's your mom from? Kansas City, Kansas.
0: And how, how did they meet exactly? Do you, know, do you know?
1: And my mom was mowing the yard in her bathing suit. And my dad drove by <laughs> in his car. <laughs> and he had his arm sort of resting on the open window. And she thought, well, that's a very nice looking arm. And he thought, well, that's a very nice looking yard worker. <laughs> and that's oh, how that's... they met.
0: That's pretty good, um uh-huh. so how would you describe your dad in terms of personality?
1: um well, everything about my dad was sort of larger than life. He was almost six foot six he um he was very smart, he worked very hard, and he was um he could be very charming and funny um It's kind of, I don't know how to say this, it's kind of hard to, like, I don't know what he was like in other contexts, you know, but Mm -hmm. for me, that's what he was.
0: When you were growing up, um, how many people um, are in your family? How many siblings?
1: Um, I have one brother who's um, eight and a half years older than I am.
0: Right. And where did you grow up?
1: In Spring Hill, Kansas.
0: Mm -hmm. So what's Spring Hill like? Um, I'm trying to picture this. uh...
1: So it's, we're not very far from Kansas City, Missouri. So my dad actually worked in Kansas City, Missouri for a large portion of my childhood and you know in in the suburbs and things like that but Mm -hmm. we're Kansas City Royals fans we're Kansas City Chiefs fans you know we could go to museums and things like that without any I mean it's probably like 30 35 40 minutes to get where we were going if we wanted to do something like that so it's kind of like this perfect blend of small town and we still had access to culture and big things so it's when I was growing up I think that there may have been 2,000 people in town mm-hmm. so it was very small and in, in the city itself in the Spring Hill Township it was bigger than that but it was it was very small there were 80 89 people in my graduating class um, the majority of people that I went to Preschool with, we went from preschool, I shouldn't say the majority, there was a a large number of us that went to preschool together at the Methodist Church here in town, and then ended up graduating together. So I went through school my entire life with those guys.
0: Right. Yeah. And when I picture the town, um, are you familiar with the David Lynch film, uh, The Straight Story? Mm. Mm Mm-mm. Um, it's it's about a guy who drives from. Um, uh, I think he drives across Iowa on a lawnmower. He's an old guy. He's going oh to yeah his, yeah his yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah. I do know that. Yeah. yeah.
0: So uh, I think of the town that he was in, the small, quiet farming town. Yeah,
1: it was. We pretty don't wide have main,
0: any... wide main street.
1: Yeah, um, we, we don't have any stoplights in town, so.
0: <laughs> was it a, was it a nice place to grow up?
1: You know, at the time I I don't think I appreciated it for what it was. Mm-hmm. And I have subsequently lived in Kansas City, Missouri. We lived in Las Vegas, Nevada. We lived outside of Memphis, Tennessee, and I came back cuz I wanted my kids to have the same sort of experience that I did. Right. There's something really special about The people that I went to school with, you know, because we all knew each other's brothers and sisters and our brothers and sisters had been in school with their brothers and sisters. And so, you know, I think that we tend to be closer than like my husband went to a school where there were 500 people in his class and he's not there's not that kind of connection Mm -hmm. to place that I have. Mm
0: -hmm. And what did your dad do for work
1: um he was he went through plumbers apprentice school uh-huh. and so he was um, a plumber by trade and then he and eventually ended up moving into management of construction companies that either did HVAC and, and plumbing or then he was sort of, they started, started to do general contracting. So he was a project manager on large-scale construction projects like VA hospitals, hotels, um, wastewater treatment plants. At one point in time, they had a contract to a government contract to work on the missiles that were in um, that were in the missile silos around here, uh, the nuclear missiles, and um, he would actually get down in the missile silos and make sure that the temperature was. Uh, th- th- they tended to be temperamental in as much as it had to be a it couldn't get too hot couldn't get too cold so um, I'm trying to find what my brother wrote because we shared the obituary and my brother my brother's older than I am and so he knew the that sort of I was only like Four or five when he was doing this, maybe six. I'm not even sure. But my mm-hmm. brother's old enough to remember. So he worked on um, Titan II missiles that had live uh, W53 nine megaton warheads on them, and so the liquid propellant in the rockets required that the refrigeration be kept in a very narrow range to prevent the propellants from getting too cold and freezing or too hot and boiling. So he would actually crawl in these missile silos and, and work on that. So that's a pretty sobering thing when you think about it, like, Oh, I'm sitting here on a live nuclear warhead. Wee. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. And what was your, you know, if you think about um, your sort of family life when you were growing up, what, um, what was it What was it like?
1: Um, and my dad traveled a lot with his job because they had jobs all across the country. I think he worked in forty six of the forty eight contiguous states, right? So we had this farm, and he was gone Monday through Friday a lot of the times. And you know, it was up to me and my mom. And then, and my brother, but then my brother graduated from high school and went to college, and so it was up to me and my mom to kind of take care of things around there, so we didn't take a lot of vacations, and by a lot, I mean none. We would go down to where he grew up every once in a while, but we never went on a family vacation until I was in my twenties mm-hmm. um, everybody and you worked... were living
0: on you were living on this farm
1: yeah. I mean, I was in college and gone by that point in time, but everybody worked very hard. We had to take care of cattle. We had to check cattle. We had to make sure that, you know, um, everything was okay. Fences, cattle would get out. We'd have to go get them. Cows would get sick. We'd have to give them medicine. I remember once my, I was in fourth grade. So this would have been the first year that my brother was in college and my mom is very small, as tall as my dad is. My mom is small; she's only, well, she would tell you she was five foot two, but she was kind of fudging a little bit. Um, and so, I'm very tall; I'm six foot tall now. But so at the time, I was I was in almost as tall as she was. And the the calves in the springtime had gotten sick with something called scours, and so you had to. Um, kind of wrestle them around and give them a pill. It's called a bolus and there's a special tool for it that you have to kind of shove all the way down their throat. Mm-hmm. And then we had to give them a shot and we caught this one calf and I, mom was holding it cause she was a little bit stronger than I was. So she was holding it and I was giving it a shot <laughs> and I, Every once in a while, you you, they would bleed. Not a lot, but, you know, I mean, they're giving them a shot. Most of the time, they didn't. But for some reason, this one started to bleed. And I was crying because I was so upset that I had hurt this calf. I was only 10, 9, 10. And we had to do this for several different calves who were sick. And when we finally finished... My mom and I were just kind of like leaning against each other. It was like, oh my goodness. We were so tired from having to do all of that. But we had a lot. I mean, we had three ponds. I spent a ton of time outside, Um, climb trees and run around without shoes. And,
0: you know. Did you spend a lot of time on your own?
1: Mm, Yeah. Well, my brother was so much older than I was, and there wasn't anybody to play with. But. When my dad, I'd wait for my dad to come home from work and, you know, follow him around like a shadow. And in the summer, I would get up with him and um, we would, I would, he would have breakfast and get ready to go. And, you know, I'd wave to him. And whenever we were doing, whenever he was home and working outside, I would tag along like a little shadow. And you know they would give me my brother, and him would give me um, important, I'm making air quotes important jobs to do, yeah. <laughs> like holding the flashlight. Here, go throw that away. Okay, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and when he would when he would put up hay or be on the tractor, I would ride around on the tractor with him, and the tractor had this little toolbox on his right-hand side and I would sit on the toolbox and I would hold the radio for him so that when he was that we could listen to the Royals games or we could listen to music or we could do anything because you know it gets a little tedious to drive around on the tractor for hours in the hot sun so I spent as much time with him as I could when I was little Mm -hmm. then I kind of grew up and stopped you know wanting to do that as much
0: when he was coming home from work and and you're waiting for him, could you actually see him or could you see him coming from far away?
1: Um no, because in the summertime it would the trees would fill out, and I couldn't see him from from the road
0: right but okay. we had a, I just wondered no, <laughs> I just this...
1: no, it wasn't like that. It wasn't like I could see a cloud of dust or anything
0: when it came time for you to leave to go to college, where did you go?
1: I spent my first two years at Kansas State University, and I just was not happy. I didn't like it there. Why not? I was just sort of in my angry young girl phase, where I would have rather, uh, you know, smoke cigarettes and drink beer and, you know, sort of been rebellious. I actually had... um, I have clinical depression and generalized anxiety disorder and nobody knew anything about it at that point in time. And so that's when that kind of started. And there was a lot of, when I was 12 years old, my dad told me you're going to be in the Olympics playing basketball. So I was expected to practice basketball every single day, just fine, whatever. But when it came time to go to college, I had all these basketball scholarship offers and I didn't take any of them. Why not? I don't know if it was to piss off my dad or, or what, if I was scared that I wouldn't be good in college or I don't know. I think that in, in my life, I think my biggest sort of, regret in terms of things I wish I would have done differently as I wish I would have played basketball someplace. I think it would have helped with all of the sort of depression and angst that I went through when I went to college because a lot of my identity was tied up in being an athlete because I played volleyball, basketball. I'm not saying I was the best at any of this stuff. I just did it. Volleyball, basketball, basketball. I did track and I played softball. So sort of my whole existence was wrapped up in what sport I had that season. Yeah. And when I stopped, I just didn't know what the hell I was.
0: So did you stop cold when you went to college?
1: I did. That's did. pretty full on. Yeah, it was I I did not handle that well at 18. Nobody should let me make decisions then. I don't know what the people were thinking. <laughs> well,
0: there, there is that. I mean, um, I find that as I get older, I just realize how, um, I, I generalize how, about how how dumb teenagers are, mm-hmm. um, but also how dumb I was, you know. That's oh, just, yeah. I think just,
1: a lot of that is me projecting my own stupidity on other people. <laughs> like who so let me have a car what were you thinking <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, you know when you said that you, you don't know why you didn't want to do the basketball mm-hmm. and take one of those scholarships um, do you really not know I mean when, when you think about that now does it really not crystallise for you um
1: There was, as much as I love my dad and as utterly sort of amazing as I thought he was and still in some ways think he was, he was also a deeply flawed person. When I was, I think I was 12, I've kind of... Squish some of the stuff together in time. My brother and my dad went to Canada for a fishing trip. And I, this was a weird summer. I don't know what the hell was wrong with dad this summer. He was just sort of overly abrasive. And I had to clean out the car for them to go. And I'm like, what well, wait a minute. I'm not going. Why am I cleaning out the car? I mean, I had to take the seats out of the car and vacuum it and everything. I was pretty salty about that. And so when they were gone, I didn't practice basketball the entire time that they were gone. It was like a week. So he came back and he wanted to know why Or like how practice was. And I wasn't going to lie to him. I was like, I didn't practice. And he got so mad at me that he went inside the house and he got a belt. And at the time, my basketball goal ended up moving closer to the house, but it was out in the yard. And he stood there, and it was July in Kansas. So it was hot and it was humid. And every time I missed a shot, he would hit me with the belt. And it got to the point where my mom and my brother were ready to call the sheriff. And so I came inside after it was over with and I was in my bedroom just sobbing and my brother was standing on my door and he didn't play sports. Just wasn't a thing. He's a genius. Like he works on the human genome project. He has a PhD in biochemistry. His sort of part-time hobby is, uh, saltwater aquariums and he's invented like solutions for hobbyist aquariums. I mean, he's a bona fide genius. And he stood in my doorway and he looked at me and he said, what have I done to you? Meaning, cause he didn't play sports. And so I don't know if deep down inside, I was punishing him for what, for punishing me that way, but I really don't know. I mean, I can't answer that hundred percent.
0: So when it comes time to tell your mom and dad that you're going to go to college, but you're not going to take a scholarship, mm-hmm. how did that, how did you do that?
1: Well, The schools that were offering me scholarships were smaller. And you know, I had gone to such a small high school that it wasn't it around here at the time, your choices were kind of the University of Kansas, Kansas State University, or those were the two big schools that people would go to. I mean, there's other schools in Kansas that are bigger, but those were the two big ones. And it just, I mean, I, I wasn't, we talked about it a lot and I was just like, no, I just don't want to, I just don't want to play in college. And so, I mean, you can just add it to the list of things I probably did at that age that disappointed them, but And then I picked K State, which was not their choice would have not been their choice for me. Which was sort of another backhanded rebellion, I think. Because we were we were KU people. My brother went to the University of Kansas. My dad's one brother had gone to KU. But you know, it was just one of those things. I think that I was able to skirt by it not being so obvious because I-, I wanted to go to a big school and have that kind of experience, as opposed to small school, little tiny school, mm-hmm. which is what I had done anyway.
0: So, did you succeed in pissing them off then? If that
1: was your, uh, I believe so. Yes, I believe I was completely successful in that. Um, N- nobody was happy the day I went to college. <laughs> There was Um, angry, angry sweating and scowling as I was moving into my dorm room.
0: Uh huh. So, when you go to college, um, what are you studying?
1: I was studying. Well, I mean, it was all sort of all over the place. Um, Kansas State is a Kansas State University is a land grant school, so that means it's an agricultural school. Mm -hmm. So, I was in the School of Agriculture, and I was looking at milling and baking science and, you know, it's Kansas. So we got a lot of wheat. So there's that. And then I was thinking about doing journalism and I was sort of all over the map in terms of what I wanted to major in. So I ended up at the end, I was just taking classes because I knew I didn't want to come back for my I was there for two years. I didn't want to come back after that. I wanted to stay around where I, you know, like go home and get a job and just kind of figure out what the hell I wanted to do. Because I was lost. I was absolutely lost. Did you know you were lost? I mean, if you told me, if you asked me, I would have probably said no. No. But somewhere inside, I knew that I was lost. And I just was, I just was terribly unhappy there. It was, but I was terribly unhappy as a person. So I, you know, people are like, oh, you didn't like K State. No, K State was, K State just happened to be the place I was at that time. Had I been anywhere else, I would have been miserable too. Do you mind me
0: asking this? Like, do you relate? Your uh, Depression to That particular story that you told me About your dad or uh, No I mean, it's a did, chemical did...
1: thing Okay okay. I don't think that that Certainly that didn't help anything <laughs> But um, I just have It's just a, a chemical imbalance I still take antidepressant medication
0: Mm-hmm so so what's your trajectory then? Because so when you when you leave college, right, what do you graduate with?
1: Well, I, I left K-State and I came yeah. back to I was living at home at the time, you know, kind of like couch surfing with friends and, and things like that. And I went to junior college. I was working. I ended up graduating from the University of Kansas. With an English degree, right? And then I right because you know I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I'll major in English. (laughs) So
0: (laughs) you're you're talking to a fellow English graduate here, so that's (laughs) what the laugh was about.
1: (laughs) Like every other lost soul who wants to write a book, I'll major in English. (laughs) And then I, um, then I ended up staying at KU and I taught freshmen. English for two years while I was getting my graduate degree. I have a master's in English because, you know, I had to double down on it. <laughs> and then I ended up going to law school. So I'm an attorney now.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. And did you do all that? Uh, did you do all that there or did you do any of that in Nevada? Uh, I actually. Nevada, or?
1: I, um, I went to law school um, in Kansas City, Missouri at the University of Missouri at Kansas City. So it's one of a handful of law schools that's had a president go there and a Supreme Court justice. Uh, Which ones? Harry Truman and Charles Whitaker.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yep. Charles Whitaker ended up going crazy, so we got that going for us.
0: (laughs) You mentioned there that that you moved around quite a bit before coming back home, Mm -hmm. eventually permanently. Mm -hmm. Um, What was taking you around those different... You were in Vegas for a while and you were in L.A. for a while, is that right?
1: No, we were in Vegas for nine years. My husband um, has a hospitality background. So really? he was the like director of food and beverage at a hotel in Kansas City. And then he got laid off from that. And that was my last year of law school. So he starts looking for a job and he, I mean, he finds a job in Las Vegas and it was like, all right, let's go. So, I actually had our son between my first and second year of law school and we packed up. Um, Joseph wasn't quite two and we set off across the country and went to Vegas and I studied for the bar exam with my trusty little buddy with me and passed the bar exam and then started working and Las Vegas was absolutely wonderful to us. It was a great experience. We met some wonderful people there. And then my husband got out of the casinos and started working for a company that does environmental services and hospitality, like all of the food service at a hospital for patients and if they have a cafeteria, mm-hmm. they do that. Um And they do all the ancillary services like linens. And now they're starting to do like calibrating the equipment, like IV machines and things like that. So they bundle all those services. And anyway, he started working for that company. And that's how we ended up outside of Memphis in Collierville, Tennessee. And that was, you know, that was a very sweet place. It kind of reminded me of my hometown, only much bigger, it was way, way bigger. But it had a really sweet little square, like a town square, and it was it was very cute. So we were there for four years, and then the opportunity came for us to come home back to Kansas City area, and I wanted to do that because my parents were getting older. My dad actually had Alzheimer's when he died. He was in the nursing home, so... I wanted to be with him as much as I could to have any kind of converse, you know, just I had a window of time and it was rapidly closing and I wanted to spend as much time with him as I could when he was could at least, you know, say hi and things like that. He was to the so- point Oh, go ahead.
0: No, So how, how was he when you moved back?
1: Um, talk about windows. I would try to keep my visits to about 10 minutes because he could do okay for that long and then he would get, it was too much for him. Like he could kind of maintain a conversation, and things like that. But and then he would get tired and, and you could just tell he was he couldn't concentrate or focus anymore and beyond that. He there was one time I don't think he knew who I was, but we hadn't actually moved back then. But um like if you had asked him who I was, he wouldn't be able to tell you. But he knew somehow that I belonged with him. And so I have an office. My office is here in town and I would, there's actually a coffee shop in um, our main street. That was where the grocery store a million years ago used to be like when I was very, very small, the grocery store was there. And um, I would go get a coffee at the bean and then I would go to the nursing home I would walk in and I'd be like, good morning, daddy. And I'd like give him a smooch and be like, I've got to go to work. And then I, you know, leave and go to work. And so I just, I knew that I didn't want him to be, I didn't want something to happen to my mom and dad and me be, you know, somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. And I I know that that's silly because I could, you know, be here and something could happen and I wouldn't be with them but I don't know the proximity thing and it started to get to where I was almost frantic to get home because once we elected Egolf Twitler as the, the President of the United States I had a terrible like feeling I just had this feeling of doom that something was going to happen that he was going to get us in some sort of disaster. I thought that there would be some sort of nuclear incident or that there would be, you know, he would declare martial law and I, my mom would be at her house and I would be in Tennessee and not able to get to her. And My brother's not here. He's in Wisconsin. And, you know, who would take care of my mom? And so I just, I it sort of was bordering on an unhealthy fixation with Me trying to get home so that I could be with them because I, I was just terrified that something bad was going to happen. And look, something bad happened.
0: You were right all along.
1: I was right. I did not have pandemic though.
0: No, pandemic was the was the one thing that I think was probably not on most people's radar. Right? Mm -hmm. It was. I mean, I had a pretty long list myself. Right. You, You hit on a couple of them. Right, right. Um, right. I thought you know, there's when you realize that there's that there's nothing someone won't do. Right. Um, then you know the list gets very long immediately right. of potentially bad things. You know, right. So how did you how did you find out then that well, how did you find out? Uh, first of all, um, I should ask you, you know, do you do you remember when you first became aware of COVID nineteen itself and the, the fact that this was happening
1: elsewhere? You know, I remember hearing about it on the news. I, I think it was, I want to say it was at the end of last year or the very beginning of this year. They said there was something in China. And I was like, I mean, it, I I guess I thought, well, if they're talking about it on the news, I should at least be aware of it. And I think it was when I was in law school. Or maybe it was right after I graduated from law school. I don't know. That's when SARS was happening.
0: Yeah.
1: And there was, um, my law school had a exchange. I don't know what you call it, an exchange program, but that summer mm-hmm. program in China that you could go study in China. And, I don't remember all the details, but I remember something about SARS and I don't think that people were able to go that year. They canceled it. And so as we started hearing more about it, I was like, oh, well, you know, this is reminded me of that situation. And I never gave it much consideration until probably February and my mom turned 80. And so I arranged for her to have a party here at my house. And my brother and I conspired that him and his girlfriend and their little boy would come down and surprise my mom. And at that point in time, I think there were like 14, 17 cases. And my friend that I share office space, that he graciously shares office space with me, um, was sick then. And he was running around calling himself patient 15 or 18 or whatever it was because he had a cough and a fever. And so we were still kind of, I don't want to say joking about it, but everyone was aware of it at that point in time. And then my brother came down, surprise party, yay. Um, so that's in the middle of February. And then my daughter had a dance competition. She does competitive dancing. And she had that was the very first weekend in March. It was March sixth through the eighth. And I was very um I was very cognizant of not touching like the escalator at the facility where it was, I wouldn't touch anything. And I washed my hands a bunch of times that day. So by the beginning of March, I knew I was aware of it at least that much. But that seems, I swear to God, that seems like it was two and a half years ago. Doesn't it? Oh my God.
0: I mean, I remember reading about um, somebody having a St. Patrick's day party 17th of March in Florida or something. And, Mm -hmm. A couple of folks were commenting on it, and uh, yeah, 17th of March, how long ago that seems.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I call it now, I'm like, that was in the before time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, the problem the problem with the, the last four years is that um, every day you feel like yesterday was in the before time. I mean, cause yeah. Because every paradigm has shifted, every norm has been transgressed, every... Yeah, I mean... Um, measure of stability and what you yeah. think is consensus is just blown apart right, right? just so.
1: gone at it with a flamethrower like yeah so. <laughs> okay well here we are
0: how are other people taking it over the, the months of march april may are people looking at you funny when they see you, see you
1: no not really um in well after we got how, home from the dance go ahead
0: no you you go ahead sorry
1: we got back from the dance convention. My husband has been traveling a lot. He's um, been working in hospitals in Colorado, and I, I can't remember where else he was, but then now he's in Virginia. And so, you know, he's been sort of all over the place. And one of the places that early on started having cases, it was Seattle, yeah. And then New York city. And there was like a, a weird sort of hot spot in Colorado. And so he came home for, he's like gone for two or three weeks. And then he comes home for a week ish. So he came back and he was getting ready to, he was actually flying to Virginia, I think, and he got a call in atlanta he was in atlanta to change planes and his company was like uh somebody at the place in colorado was covid-19 positive you need to go home and self or like self quarantine self isolate he would have had like tertiary exposure to it so he would have there was a patient And then the nurses and everybody that was going in and out of the room, they didn't realize that he had COVID-19, but he was around the nurses. So he calls me and I'm like, okay, uh, what do I do? And he's like, I don't know. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to be the person that brings the plague to my hometown. So I called the Kansas department of health and I called the, We live in Johnson County, Kansas. So I called the Johnson County Health Department, and they were like, well, I mean, that's sort of removed exposure. We wouldn't really call you exposed, but, you know, you need to do what you think is best. So I pulled my kids out of school because I didn't want them to infect anybody. That was the Tuesday of – so that would have been – Eighth, ninth, like March 11th, I pulled them out of school and I was like, look, we're going to see how things go until this test gets back. And then, you know, you guys can go back to school or whatever. And then it just kept getting worse. So they were home. And then like the major, uh, conferences, started canceling the basketball tournament and it, you know, all of a sudden this was no longer like sort of a remote amorphous kind of threat. Then the casinos started like the casinos closed in Vegas. Nobody told them to close. They closed themselves. And after having lived in Vegas for nine years, I knew shit was serious because
0: when the casinos closed,
1: yeah, they closed voluntarily. I was like, Oh crap. And so. And then did your my,
0: husband's test come back positive?
1: No, it was the, the he never got tested. It was okay. the nurses in Colorado got tested and they were negative. Right. So then we were fine. And then he went, I'm pretty sure he left then. And then while my kids were on spring break, because that would have, when I took them out of school on a Tuesday, then that weekend was when spring break started. So they had another week off of school. And this is when everything was just cascading. Like, you know, this is closed. This is closed. This is canceled. There will be no basketball tournament. There will be no March Madness. There will be, you know, everything was, and I'm like, oh my God, this is just bizarre. And then the governor of Kansas came on and was like, schools are canceled for the rest of the year. We're going to do remote learning. And that's when we went on shelter in place. And it was, you know, people were running around trying to grab food and the whole toilet paper. I'll never understand the toilet paper or the water. I'm like, Mm -hmm. it's not waterborne. You idiots. Why are you buying water? (laughs) Whatever. So, and then you know my husband's gone. I'm here with. Fortunately, I'm here, because you know I can, yeah. I can take care of my mom. And then my dad's nursing home went on lockdown, so we couldn't see him after March. I don't know when it was, but they did it for their safety, and I'm, I completely understand why they did it. And. Yeah. The nursing home was able to keep the virus out until the beginning of June. And then, you know, once it gets in one of those places, it just spreads like wildfire. So my dad made it through the first two rounds of testing before he tested positive. And then he tested positive on a Wednesday. He went to the hospital... He was shaking really hard and they took him to the hospital and I had seen pictures. I think it was in New York on TV of people and like almost like tubes to keep the EMTs from getting like plastic tubes to keep them from getting, spreading the virus around. And it wasn't until he had already passed away that I I was like, Oh my God, I hope they didn't look like that when they got him because how confusing that would have been for him. Cause he wouldn't have understood, you know, why, why these, and I mean, how frightening that would would have been, but then he went to the hospital on t- Thursday. They said that, you know, there was a discussion about what to do. And, you know, he had his Alzheimer's was fairly advanced and his quality of life had diminished greatly. And, uh, so mom asked my brother and I, they should give him the convalescent or the, the plasma, we had a discussion about that. She ended up having him What's get the a, plasma. The plasma of people who have recovered from it. Okay. He ended up getting a dose of that, and then you know there wasn't anything else they could do for him because he has a DNR, and you know <clears throat> there's only so much torture you want to put somebody in that situation through. And then he came back to the nursing home. That would have been Friday morning, I think. They came in and it just seemed to go so fast. Like he went from, oh, well, you know, he, like they came in and I don't know, the next thing you know, my mom's on the phone telling me that they're saying that hospice needs to come in. And I was like, what? And she said, so yeah. So at this they're... point,
0: you thought you thought he had sort of recovered or weathered the
1: storm? Uh, no, I, I didn't know. But I had, I didn't think it would go so fast, you know? And maybe it's because there weren't any interventions or anything like that. But hospice was like, yeah, my mom called me on, I think that would have been Saturday. He's, uh, mom said he's in a 24 hour window. And I was like, what? And part of that is until the moment he took his last breath somewhere inside me, I was almost convinced that he was going to sit up and, and just be okay. Right. Cause he was, when I was a kid. He was never, I mean, he may have gotten a cold or something like that. He was never sick. He was as strong as, I mean, he could rip an apple in half with his hands. He was out of town one time and he was, we found out later, prone to get pleurisy. So he was in his hotel room getting ready to go to the job site and his lungs spontaneously collapsed. And he was like, yeah, it was really painful. And I I kind of thought I was having a heart attack, Um, but I walked it off. And so that was on a, right. That was on a Wednesday and he flew home on Friday. We worked in the garden and outside all weekend. Finally on Monday morning, he was sitting at the table eating breakfast. And my mom was like, you're going to the doctor. You look gray. And he did. His color was like sort of this weird gray color. He goes in there like, oh yeah, your lungs collapsed. It's been collapsed since, you know, since Wednesday. So, When you're living with somebody who walks off a collapsed lung, you kind of start to think that maybe they have some superpowers or something. But I just couldn't believe that he was dying. It just was—it was staggering. Like, oh, I guess he's not immortal. Okay, like he's got diagnosed with COVID on Wednesday. The th- Thursday before, or the Wednesday, I think it was the th- Wednesday before. Yeah, the Wednesday before. So a week before then, my mom calls and she's like, Well, your dad ripped the toilet out of the floor in his room. And I'm like, Excuse me. And he, nobody knows because nobody was in the room with him. Keep in mind, he's a plumber, was a plumber. They went into his room and he had pulled the toilet out of the floor and it was just kind of sitting up against the wall. That's how strong he was a week before he was diagnosed with COVID-19. Uh-huh. So I'm like, is, is, surely he's not, this isn't going to kill him. Right? No. Right. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: So he he goes in, he comes out to the to the nursing home, and then you get a call from your mom, being told
1: basically they need to have hosp or I think hospice came in and evaluated him, and that's when the they said he had twenty four hours. And there's because he couldn't tell us anything that was going on, you know. There some of there there's gaps in there. Like I don't know why they called hospice in. Like, I don't know why hospice was there. I don't, I mean, was there, I never got an answer as to what objective signs were going on. Like objective measurements led them to this, this, like to take this course of action. Did his oxygen levels drop? I mean, what was the indicator? Because there was a whole wing of people in the nursing home who had COVID-19. And I don't know why, Hospice came in for him. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like there just is never, there's never been an explanation or like this was the measurement that led us to believe that he needed to have this kind of intervention.
0: Yeah, I'm 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 sort of trying to get clear that. So I'm just going to say this again. I know we've sure. been over it a couple of times. So so he 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 shows he tests positive. Uh huh. He's taken to hospital.
1: Uh huh.
0: He's in hospital for a couple of days.
1: No, just a day. They gave him just the plasma. A day. Yeah, and then let him go.
0: Okay, so th- so they let him go on the assumption that either he's he's going to be okay, or is it because he they feel that th- they won't be able to help him?
1: No, it was that was on Thursday. So Friday morning, I had called and spoken to the nurse, and. You know, I was like, how's my dad? And he's like, oh, he's doing okay. And then my mom had spoken to him and he had been up on Friday and he was eating. And they were commenting that he can't hear. And I was like, yeah, he could, he couldn't hear. You had to basically holler at him, but the audiologist was like, don't get him hearing aids. Because it actually distorts the sound, and that could have been worse for him, because he wouldn't have understood it. The other part of that was he was Mister Mechanical, and he had a habit of taking things apart, and then you would never find all the pieces again. And that's fine if it's you know uh, a radio, yeah. but when it's a, a two thousand right <laughs> a two thousand dollar hearing aid, it's a different story. So. They were commenting that he couldn't hear. So, I mean, he seemed to be, I don't want to say okay, but, I mean, he was up and eating on Friday, and he was dead Monday morning.
0: And you couldn't see him during any of this time, is that right?
1: No, no. Right. So he's in isolation all this time? Yeah, yeah. And they went on lockdown in March, and I went up a couple of times to go have a window visit and just wave to him. And I, every time I went, he was asleep. So I haven't seen him since I hadn't seen him for months. And,
0: and then how did you, how did you, um, find out that he was in his last moments or?
1: Well, they told us, you know, he has 24 hours and I was like, okay. So I took a lawn chair and my mom had a chair And then my uncle was my dad's youngest brother. They're only 14 months apart. And so they were like twins growing up. He, um, he came over. He doesn't live very far from us. And we sat outside his window and that was as close as we could get to him. (laughs) And it was, it was just sort of, I don't know, bitter irony that I had been, All over, been Vegas, been in Tennessee. Come home, and when it came time, as good as as much good as I was, I should have, you know, I could have been anywhere else because I still couldn't be with him and hold his hand. So, but we sat outside. That was Father's Day in the United States, so it was the twenty first of June. We sat outside. We were outside for like eight, eight and a half hours, and he passed away at 12.43 a.m. on June 22nd, which happens to be my brother's birthday. So that was how that all ended up.
0: Were you at, were you at home when it happened?
1: No, I was, we were sitting outside his window.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. So it happened while you were there?
1: Yeah. All of my... You could tell that, you know, the hospice people have a pretty good handle on...
0: They do, don't they? Yeah, they really
1: do. (laughs) And it's like they missed the 24-hour thing by, I don't know, like three hours. I was like, oh, well, good for you guys. So... Um, his oxygen levels kept dropping and, you know, you could, you could see that he was struggling to breathe and his hands, I guess one of the things that happens with COVID is that your, um, like your organs, like your kidneys start to fail and his hands were so swollen. They didn't even look like his hands anymore. So I think that that was, that was going on and <laughs> he hadn't had a haircut, you know, cause nobody could go in or out of the nursing home. And so his hair was longer than I'd ever seen it before in my life. And I was like, Oh my God, his hair is so long. And it, you know, he just always kept his hair very short and it was curly at the bottom. <laughs> he had curly hair <laughs>
0: You never knew till then,
1: he told me that if he let his hair grow, it could get little curls, and I was like, "Okay, Dad, you know, but I'd never seen it like that. I mean, it was really long.
0: What did you do straight after after he died?
1: Uh, well. We were sitting there and, you know, I mean, he was, his breathing was getting farther apart and things like that. And I had kind of been through a similar situation last summer when my godmother's mother died. And I'm very close to my godmother's family. And so I was there. I mean, that was my grandma. She wasn't biologically my grandma, but that was my grandma. And so, you know, we were kind of counting respirations and things like that. And we're sitting there and my mom and my uncle are trying to remember somebody's name who was related to my other uncle's wife. And I looked over at them and I looked back and I was like, oh, no. And I stood up, and he'd stopped breathing. And then we called the nurse on the phone, I think. Some of that's a little jumbled because my mom got really sad, and she started to cry, and I was trying to hold her up. I mean, they've been married for 62 years. I mean, this is... So, and then we called the nurse and she came into the room and, you know, we were giving hand signals and things through the window. If she needed to communicate with us, she would actually open the window a little bit and talk to us through the window. Um, but I'm watching her and she's taking his pulse and she shook her head like, yeah, he's gone. And then... There wasn't anything else to do, so (laughs) apparently, stop it, when I didn't know this. My brother knew, of course, but he had been struggling so hard to breathe that his body was still sort of reflexively, (laughs) sorry about that, trying to breathe. And so even though he was dead, it looked like he was still trying to breathe, And I was like, this is some sort of nightmare fuel I don't need. And I was like, Mom, you don't need to see this. And I kept looking at my uncle, and I was like, is he really dead? And he's like, yeah, he's really dead. And I was like, okay. And so we got my mom away from there. And then I came home. My kids were here. They're 16 and 12 and a half. And um, I called them and I said grandpa's free from the prison of Alzheimer's and they were like oh you know like they're sad but he's been sick for most of what they remember of their lives so it really wasn't as impactful as it might have been under different circumstances because they got to the point where they didn't want to go to the nursing home. I'm like, I don't blame you. I don't want to be here yeah. either. You know, it just was – and nursing homes are so rough anyway. Mm-hmm. But – and then I started calling people. It's, I mean, it's like 1 o'clock in the morning. And then I made sure that my uncle would follow my mom home because he lives that direction. And I was like, can you follow her and – get her in the house. Okay. And he's like, sure, sure. His, his wife, my aunt Mary had died April 28th of 2019. So he follows mom home. And my mom actually hits a deer on the way home from my dad dying. No, (laughs) my uncle calls me and he's like, do you have your mom's phone? I said, no, what, you know, I don't understand But when she hit the deer, I guess the phone flew and she couldn't find it. And I was like, are you kidding me? And he's like, no, I am not kidding you. Like, oh my gosh. So the sheriff came out and I mean, we're in rural, I mean, not rural Kansas, but you know, there's deer running around Yeah. and the sheriff came out and she obviously is very rattled because one, she just hit a deer and two, my dad had just died. And, you know, she's 80 years old and the sheriff was kind of like, I think he was curious what an 80 year old was doing out running around at one something in the morning. <laughs> and she's like, well, my husband just died. And he, you know, she's really short. So he like got down to her eye level and he said, I'm, I'm so sorry. Do you need me to get a chaplain? And she's like, no, no, I, I'm fine. So she found her phone and I made phone calls and then that was what I I called my husband and told him. And I have still yet, I mean, I've gotten teary eyed about it and I've, you know, maybe had some tears like slip out, but I've not had the full like whole body heaving, crying, like major sadness. And I don't know. I don't know if I'm still in shock. I don't know if I'm. If I just don't. If I'm in denial. I don't know. Or maybe I've cried enough about him being sick all these years. But. I don't know. So that's how it ended. And my husband flew home. Because he was in Virginia. And he made it home by like. I don't know. 4.35 o'clock. On Monday. And. There was no funeral to plan. Um, his oldest brother's in his 90s, and we don't want to put him at risk. He's also, his wife is in her late 80s, and don't want to put her at risk. Um, my brother has a three year old. And his girlfriend is, she's a nurse at like a a medically fragile foster care home. So those kids are in and out of the hospital all the time. And my nephew Kai goes to daycare. And so uh, is how much risk would they bring to my mom if they came down? And my brother's like, I don't want to put mom at risk. And. You know, they said that my mom could be in the room with him when he died, and I begged her. I, I guess they would have like hazmat suited her up. I was like, "Please don't, mom. Please don't. Please don't." Because I can't. I mean, what if she gets it? Maybe I did the wrong thing on that. I don't know.
0: Well, but, there's no, there's no wrong thing, right, in a situation like that.
1: Yeah, but I feel bad that. She wasn't able to actually be with him when he died. But at the same time, she's pretty strong-headed, and she didn't go in there. So I think she was okay with – I mean, not okay with it, but she understood risk versus reward kind of thing.
0: So he died – did you say 22nd of June? Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I kept telling my brother how sorry I was because that was his birthday. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And he said, It's okay, Steph. He said, For so long, whenever I think about dad, I get, I've been sad, you know, because he was, Alzheimer's sucks. And he just wasn't the same. And yeah. It just wasn't what he would have wanted, and he said, "You know, for so long, when I think about that, I get really sad, and now I don't have to be sad anymore." So, but it still breaks my heart that he died on his birthday.
0: Was it was it difficult not having a funeral and things to arrange? Because I've always felt like those are rituals that are incredibly helpful
1: oh yeah it's like like you're in suspended
0: animation almost you know yeah we are we are did that really happen did it yeah
1: there's no and i hate the word closure but there's no natural progression of how death usually goes you know death visitation funeral you move on i i haven't we have nothing You know, we're just hanging out until it's safe for people to come and, you know, I don't know what we'll end up doing. But my dad, and I I say this in the full and complete disclosure that I am an attention whore, he of anybody would have really wanted a funeral where people could come and say nice things about him. (laughs) Because that Hammy apple didn't fall far from the Hammy tree, so it's you know, it's it's awful.
0: That's um, that's your reward for a lifetime of living, right? Is is that you know that people are going to come and say stuff about it.
1: <gasps> right? <laughs> nice things.
0: Yeah, ni- hopefully, yeah, <laughs> nice yeah. things. Yeah,
1: and or they'll
0: have euphemisms for um, the bad things, you know, like right. Like I was very strong willed wasn't he very strong, right. like yeah.
1: so so spirited <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah yeah How, how's okay. your mom keeping? I'm still recording by the way, I just want you to know that so, okay
1: just, so um she's she's doing okay, um my mom has the most tender heart of anybody you would ever meet in the whole wide world um, and people tend to mistake her. Like, her huge amount of empathy and caring as weakness, because she'll cry, because she's, like, tender-hearted. But she is five feet of titanium spine. She's <sighs> so strong. And she has weathered all of this. I mean, pretty much Alone, Because my brother was in Wisconsin and I was in Vegas and then in Tennessee. And, you know, it was rough. She kept dad home a lot longer than she she should have. Because simply for the fact that he's so much bigger than she is, that he's hard to manage. And she has been, she's just a rock star, you know. She's masked up we're trying to be socially distant. She'll come over and we'll have driveway visits and she still spoils my kids. She'll uh she likes to buy them ice cream. I'm like, "Will you stop buying them ice cream? There's ice cream in the freezer." Um but she's she's just an amazing amazing person who has weathered a great deal of sadness in her life and uh she's just so incredibly
0: strong well give her my best wishes if it doesn't seem strange coming from a no stranger. she'll
1: like that she'll like
0: that you know yeah
1: she'll think that's sweet
0: um my uh my mom was similarly small although she wasn't she wasn't five feet she may be about five foot two but um uh she had 12 children so I'm, <gasps> one of tw- I'm one of 12 so it's oh very my god old school Irish <laughs> old school Irish uh, right um,
1: that's about as Irish as Irish can be sir isn't
0: it it sort <laughs> of is uh, much as I much as I'm loath to admit it yes it is, it is <laughs> um, so um, one other thing with your dad um, mm-hmm. so would you say um, for his if I'm mentioning his kind of occupation would he be a farmer and an engineer would that be right a farmer or? um
1: No. Yeah. Farmer for sure. I mean, but he was also, I mean, it was like a construction project manager is what I always say, but I'm telling you he could fix anything, anything. He brought home a tractor one time from an auction and he was pulling the tractor, like the body of it behind the truck and all of the insides of the tractor were in a box and, him and my brother put all of that together and I mean he could fix anything anything we had a cow go down one time after having a baby and sometimes their nerves will get pinched you know like paralyzed and he hooked up a a car battery to give this cow electric stimulation like what we would do <laughs> if we had estim and he got the cow up and walking again. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I just I just thought he was the most brilliant, smartest, capable person in the whole wide world. Cause who else would have thought to do that? Well, is that just
0: um is the
1: Sorry, I'm getting some water.
0: No, that's okay. I keep forgetting that you're in summer. There, I can hear your ice thing. And I'm thinking, what's that? And then I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. It's <laughs> summer.
1: Yeah, it's summer.
0: Yeah. Um, how do you make sense of um, the the change that happens for, from when you're a daughter who is adoring your father to the to the not the moment, but to the realization that that he is fallible. And that he's that he is flawed like every other human on the face of the earth, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Um, I think that once you start to spend time around other people outside of your nuclear family, you kind of oh, you mean I you don't have to yell at me if my car breaks down? You know? <laughs> <laughs> like I I didn't do anything, you know, it wasn't my fault. Um I don't know, spending time around other people and I mean I think just growing up yourself and probably the biggest thing is recognizing your own you know, like, oh, I wish I wouldn't have done that. I wish I didn't act like that, and realizing that you too have, you know, less than desirable qualities. I just think it's part of growing up.
0: Where do you find yourself now then when you're when you're you know, you have this personal, very uh, I mean, it's one of the most intimate moments of your life, right? The, yeah. The loss of your parent mm-hmm. at the same time, the the physical intimacy is, is taken away from you. Mm-hmm. And then. Overlaying that is this um, if we even if we just talk about the US, there's just this huge national catastrophe unfolding of which your dad is is one um, is one small part,
1: yeah, um, <clears throat> Every day, I think I don't know if every day, but I often think, gosh, there's really nothing that could happen that would make me hate this administration more. <gasps> oh, wait, there it is. And then you know, two days later. Gosh, there's nothing that can make me hate this administration more. Oh, look, something else. So they never disappoint. They don't. No, Nope. They never disappoint. I should say that. Um, I don't. How do I say this? I don't blame them per se for my dad dying. I think that if. We had a president, a vice president who were functioning adults who would have been thoughtful and serious people who would have taken these things for what they are and worn masks and set an example and, and made it out like, hey, if you want to be a patriot, the most patriotic thing you can do is to wear a mask because you know, maybe it helps, maybe it doesn't, but at least we're doing what we can to protect each other. That's all that would have needed to have been said. That's it. I don't know how that would have compromised their fragile masculinity or, you know, made the economy crash or whatever they're actually concerned about. Cause it sure as shit isn't the American population, but Maybe it wouldn't have wormed its way into a nursing home in Spring Hill, Kansas, if they had done that. But it is what it is at this point in time. So I don't blame them for that. What I blame them for and what I will never forgive them for is the fact that I couldn't be with my dad. I had gone. We left in 2006. And I knew when we left in 2006, somehow I would get back. I would come back home. I've been to Vegas. I've been in Tennessee. We worked hard to get back here. You know, we did everything we could so that my husband's mom lives not very far from us, too. His father's already passed away. But we're here for our parents. We did everything we could to be here for our mom our moms and my dad. And when it came down to it, I could have been anywhere because I was as useless as, as useless could be. I wasn't in the room with him. I couldn't hold his hand and I will never forgive them for taking that opportunity away from me and everyone else who's been in that situation. It was just like you saw on TV. We called on the phone through the nurse's cell phone and told them goodbye. My brother called from Wisconsin and told my dad goodbye. I may as well have been with my brother, you know? And I'm just, I will never, ever forgive them for the just carnage that, and the emotional turmoil that this has caused every single person who's and their families who's died from this.
0: Thank you for sharing this with me, Stephanie.
1: Sure. Thanks for wanting to know about my dad.
0: Do you want to say anything else about him, his personality? I mean, now that we're deep into the conversation, I mean, let me ask <laughs> you again. What, what was your dad like?
1: Um, he was very funny. And he liked to make people laugh. Um, His dad was a real son of a bitch. And, you know, there's a story about how my dad and his younger brother, his brother Jay, that was Ray and Jay. Their names were Victor Ray and Kenneth J. But anyway, my grandfather was going to go shoot their oldest brother. And my dad was on one leg and my uncle Jay was on the other leg. And they were trying to hold him back from going to kill their older brother. My grandpa would do things like he would. I'm quite certain he beat my grandmother, but nobody will ever talk about that. And that's neither here nor there. But he would leave my grandma and he would take my dad's youngest brother with him. And the older two boys were already gone. And my dad would tell his mom, like, it's okay, it's okay, mom, I'll take care of you. You know, I'll work and get a job and take care of you. And so when I think about the tools that he was given in his emotional toolbox when he left his home and how to raise a family. They're sure it was certainly lacking. And there were times that dad made decisions and did things where it was just baffling. And as I've gotten older, I recognize that, uh, especially after I had a kid. I realized that he was doing absolutely the best he could with the tools that he was given. And he did a lot better than his dad did. And um, I think that having kids gives you a lot of perspective and grace. And I was able to give my dad a lot of grace at that point in time. Um, because all you can ask of anyone ever is that know better and do better. And he knew better and he did better than what he did. And I plan on doing better than what I had. So I'm eternally grateful for that perspective. Um, there was also, (laughs) you know, he's my dad. He's, you know, Mr. Big Strong Guy and everything else. And Alzheimer's was horrifying, but it also gave us sort of a a glimpse into sweetness that he, that we never would have seen, you know, had he had not had this illness. And there was such a a tenderness to him and a a loving that he i mean not that he hid, but you know it just wasn't able to come out like when my godmother's mother was dying, my mom went and saw him and said that Annie was really sick and you know pray for her and he immediately dropped his head and started to pray for Annie and there was just a, a loveliness and a gentleness that we were able to see what we might not have ever seen otherwise. So I try to keep that in mind that, you know, that was, I don't know, an unintended benefit gift of Alzheimer's. But he was a good man. He took care of us. He worked hard. I've never seen anyone work harder than him. He was a good neighbor, and he was a good son. He was a good brother. And he just, he always did the best he could. So that's what I have to say about my dad.
0: Stephanie Keis, remembering her dad, Victor Ray Bingman, who was born on the 28th of November 1937 and died on the 22nd of June 2020.